Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter seven. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hello, friends. Welcome to our discussion of Romans chapter 7. I've titled this lecture, The Problem of Sin and the Solution of Grace. I want you to hear Romans 7, starting at verse 5. I want you to hear it read out loud. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to what held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetness. Apart from the law, Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means! It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So when it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Ah, the problem of sin. Just hearing Paul's thoughts on that, the problem of sin is a real problem. The problem of sin, but the solution of grace. We talked last week about the permanent glory of the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, and that we would receive an indelible mark. We were baptized into the entire Trinity. You were submerged underwater. You died with Christ. God's love was poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to you, and you were infused with sanctifying grace. Let's review sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace perdures in the soul. It's what makes the soul holy. It gives the soul supernatural life. More properly, it is supernatural life. 
What's it mean to perdure? I looked it up in the dictionary. Remain in existence throughout a substantial period of time or to endure. So let's hear that again. What is sanctifying grace? It perdures in the soul. It's what makes the soul holy. It gives the soul supernatural life. More properly, it actually is supernatural life. To illustrate, I'd like to use this analogy from Carl Keating, the founder of Catholic Answers. He illustrates sanctifying grace like this. Imagine yourself transported instantaneously to the bottom of the ocean. What's the first thing you'll do? That's right, you'll die. You'll die because you aren't equipped to live underwater. You don't have the right breathing apparatus. If you want to live in the deep blue sea, you'll need equipment that you aren't provided with naturally. You need something that will elevate you above your nature, something super above natural, such as oxygen tanks. It's much the same way with your soul. In its natural state, it isn't fit for heaven. It doesn't have the right equipment. And if you die with your soul in its natural state, heaven won't be for you. So what you need to live there is supernatural life, not just natural life. That supernatural life is called sanctifying grace. It is sanctifying grace that indwells your soul when you die. Then if, if it's there, you have the equipment you need and you can live in heaven, though you may need to be cleansed first in purgatory. But if sanctifying grace does not dwell in your soul when you die, then you will have no share in the divine life with the Trinity. What is sanctifying grace versus actual grace? Actual grace, by contrast, is a supernatural impulsion. It's transient. It doesn't live in the soul, but actual grace acts on the soul from outside, so to speak. It's like a supernatural kick in the pants. It gets the will and the intellect moving so that we can seek out and retain sanctifying grace. You can obtain supernatural life by yielding or being docile to the actual graces you receive. And God keeps giving us these divine pushes. All we have to do is yield to them. Go along with it. Be docile to the Holy Spirit. You see this beautiful picture of the Trinity. Jesus has his cross of redemption. He's done the work with the Father, united in love, and they send out the Holy Spirit. And if we're docile to that Spirit when he urges us and, and, and gives us that kick in the pants, for example, God moves you to repentance. You have conviction in your heart. If you take the hint, you get yourself to the confessional where guilt is washed away for your sins. That's actual grace moving on you and you seek out the sanctifying grace of the sacrament. You're absolved in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the entire Trinity at work again through that sacrament of penance, through your reconciliation to God, you receive again sanctifying grace. You're resolved. You're absolved by the, the Trinity and you can again partake in their divine life. You receive sanctifying grace, the channel of that is through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priest acting in persona Christi, when he gave them the power to forgive sin or to retain sin in John 20. But you can lose that sanctifying grace again by sinning mortally. Remember that word mortal. It means death. Mortal sins are deadly sins because they kill off that supernatural life inside of us, the sanctifying grace. Mortal sins can't coexist with supernatural life because by their very nature, mortal sins say no to God, while grace always says yes to God. So there's a real problem of sin, but there's a solution and it's grace. You were infused with sanctifying grace at your baptism and it is supernatural life inside of you, the divine life of the Trinity. You rose with Christ Jesus from death 
into new supernatural life. You're a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that in Christ, you are a new creature. And on the eighth day or there soon after, you became a daughter or son of God's promises with that indelible mark, that seal of the Holy Spirit for eternity, an everlasting covenant. Baptism, my friends, is the greatest gift you can ever receive. And you want to open up the gift. It's God's love, the supernatural life of the Trinity. It's been infused in your soul and you want to start partaking in that pure life of divine love. Now you want to share it. You're impelled to give love away. Keeping the supernatural life of the Trinity fully alive in you is called the call to holiness. That's what holiness is. Keeping the sanctifying grace, the supernatural life alive in you, fully alive. And this is our mission as baptized Catholics, each and every one of us. And it's not mission impossible because we don't do it on our own by our own flesh, but we do it by the spirit, the Trinity alive in us. Now, we talked last time about the mission of each person of the Trinity, the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier. But just like each person of the Trinity has a mission, each member of the church baptized into the Trinity also has a mission. Filled with this new life of the Trinity through baptism, each family member is impelled to love. The mission is to love. You know the song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Love is always done in communion with others. New life in the Trinity is meant to be shared. You want to share it. You're impelled to share it. And so the church exists. Evangelization was the heart of the Second Vatican Council, as well as the pontificates of all the popes following the council. The missionary mandate of the risen Jesus Christ to the apostles, the Great Commission, is to go make disciples of all nations and baptize them into the Trinity. So let's look at Pope Paul VI in his document, Evangeli Nutidiande, Evangelization of the Modern World. He drew together the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and described that evangelization was the church's deepest identity and her deepest mission, that the church exists to evangelize, to proclaim Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit so that people in our times will open their hearts to him and find the Lord and in his church salvation from their sins and the path to authentic holiness. My friends, holiness has to be authentic. It has to be lived. The mission is directed toward those who have not yet heard the good news, but it is also directed to those who no longer practice their faith. Now, the next Pope, John Paul I, was called the Smiling Pope. He was only Pope for 33 days in 1978, but he evangelized with his great joy. The next Pope, John Paul II, evangelization was also central to his papacy. He talked about a new springtime of Christian life. He called for a new evangelization, not new in content, but new in its ardor and methods and expression. He reaffirmed the church's mission to proclaim the gospel to those who had never heard it, but he also stressed the obligation to evangelize those whose faith had grown cold and to re-evangelize nations who were formerly Catholic and strong Catholic nations, but now their faith was fading in the modern world. And so Pope John Paul II was the most traveled pope in world history. He went to 129 different countries. He, he traveled 721,000 miles, an equivalent of 31 times around the earth. His predecessor, 
Benedict XVI emphasized also that evangelization is not merely a program, but rather an opening of the heart involving being an agent of the Holy Spirit and helping people have a profound experience of Jesus and his love, a love that opens them to the word of God, which Benedict dearly loved the word of God, and the sacraments and virtuous living, and ultimately a vocation, a call, a universal call to holiness, the call to holiness, authentic witness. St. Paul is urging members to live this way in Romans 6 and in Romans 7. Now, Benedict XVI resigned on February 28th of 213, and the modern world was stunned. It was shocking. Pope Benedict was the first pope to resign since Gregory XII in 1415. The 266th pontiff to succeed Peter would be named on March 14th, 213, when the white smoke emerged from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican, signaling the cardinals had elected Jorge Mario Bergoglio. The the newscasters didn't even know how to pronounce it. They weren't prepared for this person. This announcement of a 76-year-old Argentine bishop from Buenos Aires as the new pope. Evangelization was also clearly central to the pontificate of Pope Francis. The Holy Spirit had chosen the first pope from South America and the first pope from the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order of priests founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola, Spain, for a time such as this. I heard a cardinal say that he was in that conclave and he had never felt the Holy Spirit more alive at any other papal conclave in modern time as this election of Francis. The state of the church at the time of Francis's election was in shambles with the sexual abuse scandal raging and the church very wounded and the bride of Christ very, very hurt just in that time period, just in the U.S. alone from 204 to 212, 2012, 2004 to 2012 in the U.S. alone had paid out more than $2.9 billion with many more settlements and chapter 11 bankruptcies to follow. It was not just a U.S. problem, but an absolute worldwide church problem. So there was severe undermining of the authentic holiness, the authentic holy witness of the church hierarchy. And this did great collateral damage of the wounded bride, the church, which we will pay for for many, many years to come. The healing will be slow, but it's possible with the divine physician. But for a time such as this, the Holy Spirit chose Francis to lead. Now, Francis opens up his pontificate with the joy of the gospel. He speaks of the urgency of this mission, and he calls for parishes and church institutions to be missionary in conversion. He challenged bishops and priests to take the lead in creating dioceses and parishes that are alive and on fire with the mission of spreading the gospel. And so we started seeing missionary discipleship programs and books and and this growing need for the parishes to move from maintenance to mission, divine renovation, building and, and raising up missionary disciples. Francis looked to the Virgin Mary as the model disciple, her purity, her humility, and the fullness of grace, sanctifying grace within her. Francis dedicated his pontificate to the Queen of the Apostles. He always pointed to Our Lady for intercession and for her protection and for her maternal care over the church. Anywhere he went, he sought out Mary. This Pope, Francis, showed us how to partake in the divine life of the Trinity, how to live love, how to partake 
partake in the life of love. He showed us an authentic witness to the gospel of love and the gospel of life. He strove to practice what he preached. He had joy, great joy, joy with priests and joy with nuns and joy everywhere he went. He performed many corporal works of mercy in front of our eyes. Here he's visiting prisoners, blessing prisoners, washing the feet in a high security prison on Holy Thursday, washing the feet of Muslim immigrants, blessing lay women, has such a heart for mothers and always encouraging mothers to breastfeed using the analogy of, of, of feeding humanity. Many times he's encouraged mothers to feed their children like Mary fed Jesus. And he said yes to women in roles of curial leadership. And he has administered sacraments in front of our eyes, full of Trinitarian sanctifying grace to the faithful in holy matrimony, in reconciliation, in the Trinity absolution, in the Trinity baptism with water. And he's been so approachable to millennials and to people who want to be near him and be near love. And, and, and he's, he's never stopped kids from taking selfies with him. This man has only only one lung. It's well documented. His other lung was removed when he was a teenager because of an infection. He is one lung and 83 years old, soon on December 17th to be 84 years old. He works tirelessly. He is a slave, a doulos for the Lord, a witness of love to the world. And yet some in the world hate him. Even some in the church hate him. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. A vicar is the earthly representative of Christ. The vicar of Christ on earth. And hating him is nothing new because Jesus said it would happen. He told the apostles, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen. They hated both me and my father. It is to fulfill the word that it is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Some in the world hate Pope Francis, and even some in the church hate him. He needs our prayers. He is the vicar of Christ on earth, number 266, pontiff successor to Peter. Pope Francis blessed an empty square for three months every day after the coronavirus lockdown began. He still was faithful in coming out to no one and, and preaching and teaching and exalting and the faithful. Now the faithful have returned back to Italy, back to St. Peter's Square with masks and social distancing as much as they can, coming to hear the Holy Father to get his blessing. But right now, as of today, cases another wave of, of, of great coronavirus cases in Italy. The call to holiness, the call that St. Paul is calling for, the sanctification of the divine life of the Trinity living within us that we see in Romans 6 and 7 is something Francis speaks to often. He talked about gossiping recently, that gossiping is a plague worse than the coronavirus. Francis said the faithful, he asked the faithful to steer clear of gossip, calling it worse than the coronavirus, saying that it will be used to divide the Roman Catholic Church. Please, brothers and sisters, let's make an effort not to gossip, Francis said. Gossiping is a worse plague than COVID, the Pope said during his weekly address. The devil is a great gossip. He is always 
saying bad things about others because he is the liar who tries to split the church. The Pope has regularly warned of the risks of gossiping and has also railed against internet trolls. If something goes wrong, offer silence and pray for the brother or sister who has made a mistake, but never gossip, said Point Pope Francis. He's also recently spoke of selfish indifference being worse than coronavirus. Now, he says, while we are looking forward to the slow and arduous recovery from the pandemic, there is a danger that we will forget those who are left behind. The risk is that we may then be struck by an even worse virus, that of selfish indifference. Selfish indifference is a virus spread by the thought that life, the li- that life is better if it's better for me and that everything will be fine if it's fine for me. It begins there, says Francis, and ends up selecting one person over another, discarding the poor and sacrificing those left behind on the altar of progress. The present pandemic, however, reminds us that there will be no differences on borders between those who suffer. We are all frail, all equal, all precious. So the problem of sin, but there's a solution of grace. The problem of sin Paul talks about it in Romans 7. We call it concupiscence. Why do I do what I don't want to do, but I do it anyway? There's two types of concupiscence in morality, the bodily appetites and tendencies of simply the passions. And in theology, the the proneness of sin in man's nature due to the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, severely undermined authentic holiness, sin, severely a non-authentic witness, concupiscence, sin in the hierarchy, severely undermined. What is this concupiscence? According to the catechism, concupiscence refers to any intense form of human desire. The apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties and without being in itself an offense, it inclines man to commit sin. At Catechism 1264, certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, even in the baptized. Paul was baptized and had this feeling of concupiscence inside of him. So do we. Certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and such frailties inherent in life as weakness of character and so on, and an inclination to sin, a proclivity to sin, a tinder for sin, since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with. So there is a real problem of sin in our fallen nature, but there is the solution of grace. How's this going for you? You're a baptized person, most likely. How are you showing the modern world the sanctifying grace of the blessed Trinity alive in you? How are you showing the world that love lives in you? On April 26, 218, Archbishop of Baltimore, William Laurie, spoke of a survey. The survey asked various church congregations whether spreading the faith was a high priority. Now, in conservative Protestant congregations, 75% answered yes, that's a big priority for us. 57% of African-American congregations said yes, spreading the faith is a high priority. Guess what percent of U.S. Catholics said that spreading the faith was a high priority to them? Six percent. Only 6% of Catholics said spreading the faith was a high priority. This doesn't exactly embrace the Vatican II teaching of our recent popes. Perhaps the inauthentic witness 
has undermined the universal call to holiness. The faithful must witness sanctifying grace alive in their leaders. Benedict knew in prayer that a new leader was needed for a time such as this, one who would smell like the sheep, one who would be an authentic witness of love and work tirelessly for his bride until death do us part. Can lay people love like this? Is it possible? Can just lay people do this? Lay people too must be authentic witnesses of holiness. All the baptized are called to holiness, sanctification. Yes, we who partake in love in the supernatural divine life of the Trinity that has been infused in our soul at baptism. Yes, we too can do this. What are we to say, says Paul in Romans 6? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, so by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Paul is talking about concupiscence in in, in that moral clause, the appetites of the flesh, the appetites or tendency of passions, concupiscence. Yield yourselves to God. Yield yourselves means be docile, yield to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God for instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The problem of sin, yes, but the solution is grace, says Paul. In Romans 6, b the return you get is sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. That is really, really good news. Every baptized person has the sanctifying grace needed to be a saint. A saint is one that gets to heaven. Paul in Romans 7, verse 24 says, wretched, wretched man that I am. But Paul was declared to be a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. So sinful Augustine, who was reading Paul's letter to the Romans at the time of his conversion, is declared a Catholic saint. There was enough sanctifying grace alive from their baptism for a sinful apostle, for a sinful bishop to change and live by grace. Every baptized person has the sanctifying grace needed to be a saint. There's a new blessed in the church. A young boy who went to a Jesuit high school in Milan, Italy, Pope Leo the 13th Classical High School. Blessed Carlo Acutis is his name, and he's being venerated in Assisi, Italy this month of October, the month of Mary. Carlo said, the Virgin Mary is the only woman in my life. Carlo Acutis died of leukemia in 2006. He was only 15 years old. His mother, Carlo, by his authentic witness, witnessed to both his parents and helped both of his parents return back to the Catholic Church. Before Carlo, Antonia, his mother, confessed that she only went to Mass for her first communion, her confirmation, and her marriage. The priest reported that it was Carlo who managed to drag his relatives, his parents, to Mass every day. It was not the other way around. It was not his parents bringing the little boy to Mass, but it was Carlo who managed to get himself to Mass and to convince others to receive communion daily. And once her son had received his first communion at age seven, Carlo never wanted to miss daily mass again. He convinced, he was convinced that the Eucharist was everything. And that inspired others, including his mother, who calls him my little savior. At his beatification on October 10th this year, 2020, Cardinal Valini greets his mother. It's it's at the mass of beatification of her 15-year-old son. His mother, like many Catholics, had missed Mass for years. Carlo, through his love of the Eucharist, brought her back. Carlo made holy hours. 
praying before the Blessed Sacrament for an hour at a time, either before or after Mass. He went to confession weekly. He prayed the rosary regularly. The sanctifier, the Holy Spirit, was so alive in him. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter seven, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.